Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Hack. More specifically, welcome back to Bobfest, our celebration of all things Band of Brothers. Today we have a real treat for you. We have a room, virtual room, full of distinguished guests for you. We have the Easy Kids. Hi guys. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Today we're going to be talking um, to the descendants of the men who have been, uh, well, immortalised now in Band of Brothers. Right, let's just not waste any time. Let's get started. Uh, We have with us Chris Langlois. Hi, Chris. Hello, how are you? Oh, you're in my favourite state in the whole of America. Whereabouts in Texas are you? I'm in Dallas. Oh, wow. I did a road trip through Texas. I absolutely love it. I've done two now, actually. Texas is America is uh, America's favorite state too. A lot of them just don't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> You're very much like Londoners in that you take no crap. You just wear, right. you just have hats and guitars, um, which Londoners don't have. Um, <laughs> so you are Doc Rose grandson, aren't you? I am. I am very proudly. And you have a really special relationship with the fans as well. Why do you think Doc became such a fan favorite in the show? Well, you know, I think there's two reasons. One, um, and every actor will tell you this, everyone loves Shane Taylor. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, I am lucky enough to have a guy who is just beloved the world over. Um, so Shane is a nice guy, a wonderful guy in real life. And I think that carries over into his role. And Doc was a unique role. He was not, um, he was not a rifleman like everybody else. So... That differentiated him um, amongst the other characters. And you see the war from a different perspective. And, and I think that was genius on the uh, on the writers and the producer side to come at an angle, at least one episode, devote to, um, to Roe and the medics. And that brought out a human side, the humanity of war, when guys are getting shot, getting killed, getting wounded – um, or running in a battle, it, it presents a different angle where guys, you know, and, and, and McClung told me this story where, you know, he, they were in, in Holland and a round came in on a, on a foxhole ahead of him and he thought for sure those guys were just badly wounded. So he calls for Roe and Roe runs up there and the guys are, are safe, but he goes, I felt bad because we're all hunkered down in a hole and Roe has to get up and run. Um, and so it's a different, it's a different role in war. It's very brave and very different from the other guys. 
I think as well that they used artistic license with the, the kind of romance as well, didn't they? Um, but I think again that endeared it and made it more personal. Um, in that episode, it gave the show something else. Sure, and, and yeah, obviously Renee was a real person. Obviously, um, they moved her, um, and Paul can talk a little bit more about the historical of that. And they moved her down the street a little bit to be around the hundred first. But I, I think yeah, that artistic license. Uh, you know, gave a break from the carnage and the war and the sounds of battle and, and gave people a different perspective. How did he feel about that artistic license as, as a person who it was about? Well, you know, he, he died in 98. So okay. uh, before the series came out and so just unfortunate that he kind of had an inkling that something was going on. Of course, back in 98, when he died, we had no idea the scope of it, but um, you know, that's a, one of the million questions I'll never get to have the is um, is how he thought about it, how he was portrayed. What was your um, first impression of Shane Taylor when you met him? Uh, you know, I can still see that in uh, that picture in my mind, and, and I then I took a picture because he met uh, my aunt first uh, when we got on the bus in Paris, and we were going down to Normandy on D Day, June six in two thousand one for the premiere. Um, he's a lovely guy. He's just a lovely guy. It's um, you know. If there were more Shane Taylors in the world, it, it'd be a better place. It's just a, he's just a lovely guy. You almost, you almost want to hate him because he's so nice. <laughs> uh, you're like, yeah, I know people don't like me. And it's like, I don't, I haven't met anybody who doesn't like Shane Taylor. Wow. George Lowe doesn't, like doesn't like you. <laughs> God doesn't like himself. <laughs> just sitting here quietly. <laughs> Chris, you've traveled to Europe several times now and been to many events and seen the battlefield as a young kid did you imagine that you'd be doing any of this in conjunction with your grandfather's war service well no i mean not even close i mean just when the book came out in 1992 i was a senior i was a junior in college and i remember opening the book and turning to the back and and row is on three pages and i remember closing that book and handed it back to my mom and uh, i said well obviously he didn't do anything in the war um which was a profoundly ignorant statement that I just didn't know what I didn't know at the time. Um, so yes, going to Normandy a couple of times and Bastogne a couple of times and Holland and uh, the Eagle's Nest has been unbelievable to feel a little bit closer to Paul Paul since he passed away before the series came out. And I just, I don't have those questions answered. So for me, being there brings me a little bit closer to him. That's amazing. Um, and you've written a book, haven't you? I did. I did. Um, even though I'm from Louisiana, I managed to put some words together um, <laughs> uh, coherently, and um, some people say. And so, yeah, I wanted to retell the story. And, and the big thing for me was, you know, five or six years ago when we when we started losing Compton and Malarkey and Garnier and Babe and Winters, and those guys were very good about telling their story, especially students, um, you know, from students in schools to students at West Point. You know, they were very, very good at bringing that story to life. And I thought, I'd like to find another way to tell that story and reach and keep that, those stories alive. And so I wrote, you know, wrote a book, and uh, Annika uh, from Holland uh, was my illustrator because I wanted it to be visual and not just words. And so um, sometimes I think Annika wrote – or Annika drew a book, and I wrote some words to it because everyone loves her artwork so much. But 
um, that was a big deal for me. And I, that was my contribution to the legacy of the men of easy. And, and for me, I, you know, I had no books about world war two before band of brothers came out. And mm-hmm. and now I have over a hundred, and much to the chagrin of my wife. Oh, George is holding off a copy of your book as well. <laughs> and so for me, you know, you know, Banner Brothers introduced me to World War Two, and so then I'm now, you know, and then you read a book about um, the five hundred second of the hundred first, and then you're like, oh, well, this is. Cool. Let me go read about um, the five hundred fourth from the eighty second Airborne. Well, now let me learn from the German side of point. You know. The great thing about Band of Brothers is it brought to light stories that leapfrogs you into learning about all of these other units and all of these other other countries have their own stories because they have their own angles. You know, mm-hmm. when you read about a German on the Eastern Front, it's just a it's a different angle. So, my book hopefully will inspire somebody to pick up another book about another unit, um, not just about easy, and they'll they'll see the war from a bigger picture. The more we learn, the, the better we don't re- recreate these problems. Absolutely. Um, I have to ask as well, it is so sad that your grandfather just missed seeing himself on camera. I don't think we need to ask you what your favourite episode is. Um, but how do you feel watching it? How do you feel watching his actions? I mean, you said like, in the book there was hardly anything there and, and the reimagining and the creation of him on screen. What's it like to watch? Well, you know, it just gave me goosebumps. Um, you know, when I, when I, when I went to Paris and of course I knew nobody from Adam and I, and I met these actors and, and I'd say, you know, I'm a grandson of Doc Rowe and we'd shake hands. They would, they would like shake my hand back at me, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And they're like, it was like, it's so good to meet you. And I'm like, I, I didn't do anything, but they had already done the research and already read the research and already filmed this. So they already knew more about Doc Rowe than I, than I did. Um, so it was very weird for lack of better words to see him on there after I had had that experience where people knew more about my grandfather than I did. Um, the first time I watched episode six, which was, of course is my favorite. Um, although 10, 10 always gets me. Um, when he's in a foxhole, they're, they're getting shelled and he hesitates a little bit. Yeah. And one of the guys, Donnie comes up and says, doc, we really need you. And he finally jumps out out of the hole. Well, the first time I saw that, I was like, I can't believe they're portraying him as a coward. And, of course, this was before the Internet, and there's bulletin boards. If kids these days wouldn't know about online Internet bulletin boards. But all these people are posting how great this is. And nobody mentions that little bit. And I thought, well, maybe I'm too close to it, and I'm, I'm seeing something that nobody else did. And I rewatched it, and I realized, actually, again, the genius that you showed that these men endured – being shelled and being tired and being cold and being hungry and yet got themselves together and they got up and did their job. And so it just, again, showed the humanity, um, the overwhelmingness, um, but they still got up and did their job and did their duties for the, for the guys next to them. And uh, I just think that was greatness. Um, absolutely. And so in terms of the fact that the questions that you'll never get to ask him about his war service because he was taken from you just too soon um did you manage to find that with the other veterans through band of brothers yeah to a large degree you know i got to talk to spina um uh-huh. doc spina um and, and really hearing from the other actors and the other men and, and you hear like garnier you know you know he said you, you know your grandfather was there ali your grandfather was there gordon your grandfather was there um Roe was the only medic in Easy that made it from D-Day to Hitler's Eagle's Nest. 
Yeah. So he was he was there the whole time. All those guys. Um, and so you get a sense of what he did and the scope that he did because he was there for each one of these guys being wounded. He was right there by their side. And let's talk to someone who didn't have the same experience because their relative wasn't um, portrayed on screen. So we have Susan Finn-Smith. Susan, you're the daughter of Robert Burr-Smith. Right. Hello, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. And you're in Wisconsin, aren't you? Rainy Wisconsin today. And you were saying you literally haven't left your house for weeks. No, because you know, I have a lot of the high risk factors for uh, okay. medicine. I'm just too worried. No, oh, well, to stay safe and stay healthy. But um, yeah, so your father was left out of the show. Um, how did that feel? And what did Tom Hanks say to you? Well. Um, it was interesting because I read the book before I saw the miniseries, and my dad is mentioned throughout the book. So when I, I, I like um, the Garniers, went to the Philadelphia premiere, and that's where I met George for the first time. And I was really excited and, and sat there watching the first two episodes and just started feeling let down, you know. But after a while, you know, it just... I understood that, you know, there was hundreds of men in Easy Company at one point, at any point. I mean, at one point, there'd be like 120, but over the course of three years, there were hundreds of men. And so, you know, it was fine. It was, um, both Tom Hanks and one of the screenwriters, Bruce McKenna, told me, just imagine uh, your father is just close your eyes and imagine he's any one of the guys, you know. My dad was a technical sergeant like George's dad. Uh-huh. And, um, and what they told me was they tried to focus on a couple things. Men who had something dramatic happen to them or they died in a dramatic way or the men that were alive at the time the miniseries was filmed so they could film those personal interviews with them. Yeah. My dad, my dad died in 1983, but um, I was telling Paul the other day he maintained um, – a relationship with the men of Easy Company until the day he died. They were calling him, writing him, visiting him. And um, I didn't realize that until the miniseries came out. I saw a name and I'd say, Bill Garnier, he used to write my dad all the time. I remember seeing envelopes, you know. So, um, you know, it was it was fine. You know, I've made great friendships. I've learned a lot about my father through um, talking to the men, reading um letters that my dad wrote people over the years like Scotty's dad his sister gave me a letter that my dad wrote their dad um that gave me a lot of information so it's been really a very rewarding and emotional experience I think I kind of see something in what Tom Hanks and uh, Bruce McKenna said to you in that it is the 10 episodes are a memorial to everybody even if they don't mention everybody by name but tell us about your father's career his relationship with Webster Raider and the other men um well my dad um he it's interesting because he went to a military academy during high school so he came to Easy Company with already some military training and then after the war he got married and tried to do standard jobs and was always restless. So he joined the Army Reserves and got um, Green Beret training, which is in America's um, special forces. They uh-huh. learn um, a different kind of Army training. And then he was recruited by the CIA to be a paramilitary advisor 
in the war in Laos during the Vietnam era. So he lived in Laos for about eight years. And then he came back to America and um, became the CIA liaison officer to Delta Force, which was an elite military um, group that primary job was to rescue American hostages um, in the world. Um, And so he took part in um, some American hostages were kept in Tehran in, I want to say, 1980-ish. And he was part of the failed um, rescue attempt there. And then he came back from there and had a hang gliding accident, which is mentioned in Band of Brothers. And then he had to retire on a medical disability. But he had a very, very wonderful career. But he always said Dick Winters was the best military leader of all the men he worked with. And so he always reflected back on that. But I didn't know who any of those people were, you know, that he was talking about. Would you like to talk about your father's relationship with Terence Salty Harris and the letter that he wrote to Salty's Um, sister? Yeah, that was probably the most monumental thing that's come out of all the networking with all the children and the vets is I received a letter my father had written in September, a few months after D-Day. Terry Salty Harris was in the Easy Company. If you remember in the miniseries, he's the one, I want to say episode one, two, where some of the guys mutiny against Sobel, and he's the one that Winter says, you're gone, you know, you're you're being kicked out. And um, he, um, I mean, just out of their group. So he um, apparently made it through the D-Day jump, and my, the letter my dad wrote to his sister was, well, he was so happy to see him after D-Day that he cried seeing him on the street. And then he found out a few days later that he died. Um a few days after D-Day. So he wrote Annette to say, you know, how moved he was and sad he was and that he would have gladly traded his life for Salty's. But the essence of the letter was that um, he said, I'm going to make sure that the things he died for are not forgotten. And I felt like my that's how, when I understood my father's motivation to be a soldier was to keep to that promise and I'm getting all emotional, I'm sorry. Oh, I no, it's I, fine. I believe he did. I believe yes. he kept that promise for his entire life. Um, but I didn't know what his motivation was till I read that letter. So it meant a lot to me to get it. That's incredible. To fill in some stuff about Salty Harris, he did lead the mutiny against Sobel. And when he died, he died in Carrington the same day your father, Susan, was wounded. It was shot. 12th, 13th. Yeah. And I've been at his grave in normally people like Forrest Guth and I think Paul Rogers. I think I was there with him and possibly with Bill. I can't remember. They all said the saddest thing was he didn't die with his friend because he got transferred into the Pathfinder team. And so although he did his job, he was in Normandy, didn't have sense of connection with his buddies because he'd been, he, 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 someone had to be the scapegoat, that Sobel thing. And yeah. the two fall guys were Harris and Ranny. And, uh, I know, I was going to say Ranny was the other, right? <laughs> yeah, and so, so, so Harris died, and, they, and you know, Forrest and the others said it was sad that he died without his friends. And I think that was, that yeah. was one of the things, they all wanted to go to his grave in Normandy. They all said, oh, let's go and see Salty Harris. Yeah. Um, so, dying on your own. So just like, you know, um, 
Muck and Pencala being hit and Garnier and Toy being hit, I think Harris's de um, death really affected the company. Because here's my dad, a 20-year-old boy, just sobbing on the street because somebody was alive, you know, and then to find him, find out he had died a few days later. Just, I just think it's a heartbreaking story. It really is. Um, Susan, do you have a favorite episode? Um, it's interesting because I've been re-watching it just this week because a girl um, I work with, who's only 27, was bored and wanted something to binge watch on. I said, well, watch Band of Brothers. And then I started watching it with her. And I couldn't get through it either without crying. I just, I, I got through episode two and just started sobbing and said, okay, I can't do this. Um, but um, I think I like seven. That's one of my favorites. I like them all. I mean, I always liked five because I thought it was interestingly shot and, you know, the different perspectives were cool. But seven, um, you know, has a really huge emotional impact, I think, on a lot of us that especially new build. So we have Kathy Ranney with us, the daughter of Myron Ranney. Hi, Kathy. Hello, Nina. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Where are you at the moment? I am in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where I've been for 41 years. You know, Alabama is definitely on the list of places I really want to visit. We've got a couple of questions for you. So let's start with the first one, which is about the reunions. When did they start and how did your father get involved in the newsletters and the collating of documents? My dad, I don't honestly have a date I was going to go get my um, information and then we had to go shelter in place because of a storm and I didn't get to get it. But I do remember that from the, the 101st Airborne reunions, that always his big deal was we need to have a like kind of a, basically a social place for men to gather. And he really wanted to bring the easy guys together. And this cracked me up. He had a rule. There had to be a bottle of liquor per man. That was important. <laughs> I mean, That's a good rule. But yeah, well, and, and my dad was a journalist by trade. And so he, I mean, I have, he kept track of people. He wrote a newsletter for my dad. He was an only child. He had five girls for kids. So I think he felt a little, um, maybe a little bit alienated because we kind of took over the house, but he, for him, this was his other family and he was as close to these men, um, as he was to us. And it wasn't, I didn't feel like second fiddle, but it was just like Susan was mentioning her dad. My dad and her dad were really good friends. My dad had the ability from California to go visit quite a few people and, and he did have a chance to see Burr fairly late in his life. My dad was like a, a mother hen. He wanted to keep track of everybody that he possibly could and keep them in contact with each other as best they could. How do you feel um, about your father only being a minor character in the show? Well, it, it, it's interesting. Um, I had a chance to, I, it, it didn't bother me because I totally take Band of Brothers as what it is. It's not a documentary. It is based on facts, but I, like Susan, have had a conversation with Tom Hanks, and, and what he said was totally, you know, your dad was totally involved, and but my dad left after 
Holland. So he wasn't going to be through till the end. And what Tom said is we have a limited number of characters we can fully develop. Wahlberg already is a star, and he was. He was well-known, and he will be here through the whole thing. So, you know, honestly, I'm kind of like Susan. It didn't really bother me. I know, you know, I know the story. I know Dad's part. I have a letter from Dick saying he was so sorry that Dad didn't get the credit. You know, and I wrote him back, and I said, it's okay. You know, my dad died in 88, so he didn't even get to see the book. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. I, I think, as, as Susan said, this represents um, all of the men of EZ, and, and beyond that, it represents all the people who were part of the effort. So it doesn't bother me. I'm okay with it. Other than when people say, they correct me and say, no, 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 it was Carwood Lipton that did that. And I'm like, okay, these are fans. I just let it go. It's fine. <laughs> it's easy just to let it go, right? It is. It is. It doesn't matter. And no one can take away what your dad did. Like, TV can't take that away. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't doesn't bother me. Um, could you talk about your father's role in the mutiny against Sobel and how did he deal with the fact that he was demoted? <laughs> well, my dad, as I came to learn very quickly, he was one of those people that would, had trouble with authority that didn't make sense to him. And according to some things he wrote, because he wrote his autobiography at age 60, and gave it to all of us girls as a Christmas present one year. But he didn't write much about the whole war thing because he planned to retire and write a book called Easy Does It. But still, I have some some discussion from him and also from Dick. Dad, at that point, you know, was a sergeant of the platoon, and he was in charge of that. And he, he just said, I cannot take my men into battle with someone who cannot read a map. He yeah. said, I will not do it. And Dick advised him not to take the action he was taking. And this is in a letter from Dick. Dick said, Mike, don't do it. Well, Myron, oh, Myron is his given name. He hated it. Okay. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, but Dick, he, dad, hmm. dad and Salty basically just said, we're not going. And yes, he got kicked out. Both dad and Salty got kicked out. They both went to Pathfinders. Dad, a little bit before D-Day said, I've got to go into battle with my buddies. So he appealed basically about I less than a week probably before they actually took off. Dad was reinstated in AC Company except as a private. He did not come back with his sergeant. He had to come in, busted down, and Salty went on with Pathfinders. And I think his whole life, what happened to Salty really affected my dad. That was his partner in crime. I don't think he ever got over that. Uh-huh. Um, how did you feel the first time you saw Stephen Graham? What did you make of him as the casting for your dad? Because well, he's a scouser, I, isn't he? For a start, could you understand a word he said? Well, yes and no, because I spent <laughs> some time in Scotland teaching um, and some t- a lot of time in the UK, but I've actually never met him in person. Okay. We've, talked on, we've, we've, we've done a, a broadcast together. Uh, in my, it was, I think it was with Ross Owen. So we have, we have talked on an interview and, um, I, I just looked at him in, in, in the movie and said, really? It's hard. It's weird to see somebody that's not your dad have their name, you know, yeah. your dad's name on their pocket. But I thought he, I thought he did a great job and he is a truly, nice guy and it's really interesting because 
the first time I met Hanks was at the Hollywood premiere. Mm-hmm. The second time I met him was at Winter's funeral. And he basically, he remembers me as, he remembers it as Stephen Graham. And he always says about his role in Boardwalk Empire. I mean, Tom Hanks's memory yeah. is amazing. But <laughs> it, he's got, Graham has had a really interesting career. He does a lot of, I think he's got 102 listings in his filmography on IDMB. Yeah. Interesting guy. Very kind fellow. Yeah, he just did, uh, was he not Paul last season of uh, Line of Duty, which is massive mm-hmm. over here. Um, so that's what we all last saw him in. Um, so your favorite episode? Well, I like... I like parts of all of them. I really enjoy the episodes that involve training because I only live about four hours from Tacoa. So I spend a lot of time there. I've been every place the men were, except I haven't been to Altbird, England. I'd like to be there. I also, I have the hardest time probably with the last episode. Um, yeah. Been to Birch's Garden, but what people keep posting and just brings me to tears is Dick relaying dad's story of serving in a company of heroes that will bring me to tears because Dick Winters is so stoic and he can barely finish the story, can barely get his words out. So a lot of people will say, have you seen this? Yeah, I've seen it a bunch of times and it doesn't fail to bring tears. Yeah. I've I've already admitted I've watched the series over and over again, but uh, only nine and a half episodes. I've only seen the baseball game once and a half. Can't do it again. It's absolutely destroyed. Yeah. I can't watch it all the way through. I can't sit down and do a marathon. I just emotionally can't take it. You know, it's, you know, like, like Debbie was talking about, you know, her dad. To me, this is not, this is, when I see the episode, it's like, I, it's not an actor doing this. It's a man I knew who lost his leg. And I just, I can't do it. It's emotionally too hard. I just can't do it. Having known quite a few of the people, I just can't. It's not, it's not entertainment for you guys, is it? It's it's family. (laughs) Yes. Um, we also have with us Scotty Gordon, uh, Smokey Gordon's son. Scotty, hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And where are you talking to us from? Lafayette, Louisiana. Oh, beautiful. I bet it's not raining and cold like it is in London there. Uh, actually, it is raining and cold. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I feel cold. less bad now. It is raining. <laughs> we, just um, had, we just had a big storm come through, but it's not cold. <laughs> Uh, we actually, we were talking to Ben Kaplan last night for the actor's show, um, and that, but I've been told by Paul that I have to ask you about your father's initial meeting with Stephen Ambrose in New Orleans. Well, the initial, the initial contact was with one of his assistants. Uh, just ran into a bunch of guys that were in New Orleans, not as a formal reunion, just almost like a third, not third platoon, I think it was even uh, just a few of them from uh, his squad that were just there. I, I can't remember who was actually there when they first met. But from there, they uh, it was Ambrose's assistant where then they met up and Ambrose did a formal interview with Dad, which was the first interview. This is the first interview for the book? For the book, yes. Oh, wow. Um, what did he make of it all, of the attention all of a sudden after all this time? Uh, well, Dad pretty much said when Ambrose kept asking questions, he says, well, you don't really need to speak to me. You need to speak to Winters and Lipton and 
he immediately got on the phone, called those guys and said, y'all need to come down and talk to this, this writer who's interested in looking into, uh, what we, what happened in World War II. From there, the men would come in and they'd sit in dad's place on the coast and, uh, Ambrose would interview them and that's how it pretty much got going. We, like I said, we chatted to Ben yesterday. What were your thoughts when you first met the guy they'd chosen? <laughs> well, it was, it was sort of big feeling. English, isn't he? So how does that feel? <laughs> and my father was, my father was a big man and a booming voice. And, you know, and Ben is a Shakespearean actor type. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what he's doing right now. He's with the RSC, right. so. And and when you thought of uh, my my dad was a southerner as well, and uh, so it was hard to to see my dad in Ben, but he did a great job with the character and everything else. It, but if, if I look at Ben, I don't see my father. <laughs> what did it feel like watching him on screen as your dad? Well, that that is emotional. I mean, when I think of my dad uh, being in the some of those things and especially when he got shot uh-huh. in Bastogne that was a uh, that was that's tough for me to watch um what is your favorite episode I think it's episode six where dad got, did get shot yeah but uh dad didn't was one of the ones portrayed a lot like uh that deeply it's almost like you didn't know it was either Gordon Smokey or Walter so uh-huh. you really never knew when they were talking about him except if you were specifically watching out for him, but uh, I, I was very honored that he was even included uh, and appreciated it. You um, are another one that's been to the battlefields as well. Um, how did it feel visiting the foxhole with Ben, so with your pretend dad, to look well, at somewhere that meant so much to your dad? That was emotional, and uh, the... Uh, Dad often talked about him walking up to that same foxhole uh, with my mother before the book was, you know, before all this was actually, you know, ever talked about. He had gone to the Bojocks and found his foxhole and told Mama, you know, down at the bottom of this thing is a, a his canteen cup, which was he says fell to the bottom into the muck uh, when he got shot in. in I, I don't think he dug it up, but he went right to his foxhole. That's and crazy. so me going back to it after he described it. And uh, also some, several of the men, Paul Rogers and McClung and them, all went back to the same area and uh, knew where Dad's place was. So it was pretty well documented. It's insane. It's like a hole in the ground, but none of them ever forgot. That's They knew they were there long enough. You're right. They, 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 most of the men could walk up to where they were. So we have with us here uh, Jean Garnier, who is the son of uh, well, Bill, Garn- Bill Garnier. Uh, welcome, Jean. Where are you at the moment? Um, right, right outside of Philly. Your father was one of the main characters. How did he feel about becoming a celebrity after the TV show? He clearly seemed to embrace it. He never actually took his number out of the telephone book. He responded to every autograph request, and he seemed to enjoy the opportunities it brought. I know. 
And, and if I would have taken his phone book, number out of the phone book, I would have had to leave. The, I would have been in Poland now. <laughs> he didn't understand the dynamics of what was going on, the, the, the scope of it. No, did anybody. And once it picked up momentum, there was no way to take his phone out of the, out of the phone book. I could have done that. Yeah. But I would have had to leave the country. <laughs> What um what other changes did you see in your father? None. <laughs> my father, this didn't. My mom died in 1997, and she told me in 1996 before she died that they were, there's your father's in a book. This that a book was out in '92. She told me about the book in '96. I'm sure other kids here have the same experience. My father never talked about any of this stuff, so. She said she thinks they're going to make a movie. Blah, 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 blah. In 94, my wife and I and my daughter was three years old at the time. We went to Valley Forge to the reunion. Now, nobody in the right mind would go to a reunion except George Rose. <laughs> and, and, and Sue, did you go to any reunion? I did. Didn't go. Yeah, Mary and you went. There was a few kids that did go to the reunion. The garden. George like, grew up at the reunion. So uh, when my dad, when we went to this reunion, it was in Valley Forge. And Winters was there, and that's the reunion where he invited uh, Sobel's sister was there. And Popeye, they were all there. I didn't know any of them because I didn't know anything about them. I knew all their names. But my father, after the war, and when I say this, he kind of ran the company. Am I correct, guys, that he was the center of the company? And you heard the name yeah, of Lawrence, and Lipton and Compton and Martin. You heard all these names. And he would bring pepperoni and provolone to all the reunions. My mom did not fly, so they drove everywhere. And he drove to San Diego, to Compton's, and, they, they, you know, they were just, they were really close. And I'll tell you a real funny story. Uh, I was 21. I got out home from Vietnam, and the phone rang. And my dad was in the uh, naval hospital. He was having problems with his wooden leg, and they were doing tests, patches on his back and so on and so forth. And he was developing blood clots. So I answered the phone. And uh, he's told me, he says, hello, who's this? And I said, it's Gene. And I said, who's this? He says, Johnny Morton. I said, oh, how are you? I knew his name, but I didn't know him. He said, listen, I want to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, no, listen, I want to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, if your father needs anything, doctors, money, a car, anything he needs, you call me, write this phone number down. So I wrote it down. And I'm thinking to myself, geez, I could use a few grand myself. <laughs> That's the way these people are. Scotty, he would drive to Scotty Gordon's house with my mother. Right, Scotty? That's correct. He's up at George Luss's father's funeral. Right, George? That's right. He yeah. was with Malarkey all the time, right, Marianne? And I know he was very close to Susan Finn's father because they wrote letters back and forth. And they were like, every, they were like, they would beat each other to death, but nobody can get Nobody can get into their crew. It, it was like a gang. You, you couldn't. My mother told me a story one time. They had a reunion, and you could just picture this. They didn't even. A lot of these people didn't want these people in their in their neighborhood. So they had a reunion, and the wives would all go. And I feel bad my mom wasn't around for this because she was as easy much, much of easy company as the guys. But they had a reunion, and you could picture all these women sitting around the bar in a, in a hotel. And these guys who are not part of the, the, the 101st Airborne, they're in the bar too. And they see all these young women, 
and they're trying to hit on them and so on and so forth. <laughs> so anyway, to make a long story short, they don't realize there's 30 paratroopers that are absolutely insane. <laughs> so I remember Dave told me story. This guy pulled the knife out on them in a hallway, about three or four of them. And Babe said, listen, bud, you made a mistake. The guy said, what do you mean? He said, now you're going to have to use it. And that guy left in an ambulance. But this is the way they were. And it's funny, but it's not funny. But this is, yeah. my father never talked about any of this stuff. I didn't hear any stories until after Band of Brothers. And I was probably the only one that he wouldn't let me interview him. I couldn't ask him any questions. He didn't answer anything. It's the way they were. That's crazy. It's like, it's easier, isn't it, to talk to a stranger in some ways? Than that. I guess so, yeah. I didn't know how he really, how he lost his leg. Yeah. He would, I came back from Vietnam. I said, Dad, how did you, what did you do in the, in the war? He said, kid, it's over. Forget about it. This is the whole conversation. I didn't, yeah. I didn't make that up. That was the whole conversation about the war. I understand exactly where you're coming from because when I speak to my granddad, I'd be like, oh, granddad, what did you do during the war? He's like, oh, yeah, I was just, just in the uprising. Uh, they, didn't talk, they didn't talk about anything. They didn't talk about anything. The best experience for me after this came out is I was able to sit down and talk to Malarkey and talk to Compton, talk to people that were with him, and they told me stories about him that I would have never heard without. Don Malarkey... I said to him one time, Don was the Luger guy, right? I said to Don one time, I said, Don, how many Lugers did you have? Now, Mary and my didn't even know this. He said I had about 76 of them. <laughs> I had 76 Lugers, right? I guess just carried them around. You know, Europe is crazy. So I said, he said, but I took about 60 of them, and he threw them in a, a, like a dumpster, you know, the men's room. He threw them, and he lit them on fire. Mm. He said, so the, that's so the officers couldn't get them. <laughs> he can't say that. 76 Lugers. And my father, they gave all their stuff away. My father had Lugers. They gave everything away. Uh, how did you feel the first time you met Frank, uh, who was going to play your dad or who had played your dad? And how did your dad feel? Well, I know Frank called my dad up at home because my, you know, my father was so easy to access because his phone number was in the book. <laughs> Frank called him at home and said, uh, he said, listen, I want to talk to you. He said, I think I'm going to, you know, try out for your talk. So my father said, kid, I think somebody already got it. So he said, all right. So he, he talked to Frank, and, and Frank got the part. And they were pretty close. And yeah, the first time I met Frank, I mean, it was an experience for me because he was playing my dad. And it's funny. People will say to me, does every, does he, was your dad like that? I said, I wasn't even born. I, don't, I mean, I don't know how he was, I guess. Debbie Rafferty, where are you joining us? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. From 
from right now Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. And you're actually at work, aren't you? I am. I'm a labor and delivery room nurse. Oh, wow. And you are the granddaughter of Wild Bill Garnier, is that right? That's correct. I guess we have to ask you, um, you are on the front line in, in this battle against coronavirus. Um, what do you think your grandfather would have made of the lockdown and the social distancing? Um, I don't know. I guess he would be staying at my parents' house probably. And he didn't, I, he would be okay with it, I guess, if people kept calling him and he got a chance to talk to people. I mean, he went out to eat, but I'm sure the police in the neighborhood kept bringing him food, so he'd be okay in the house. <laughs> uh, what projects concerning your grandfather are you still involved with? Um, well, we run um, the Wild Bill Garnier Memorial Fund, so my family and I raise money for veterans' causes. Oh, wow. And what kind of thing do you do? Well, we have a golf outing every year. Yeah. And then we choose different um, organizations to help. We... Um, my dad came up with donating um, coats to the, what was it, Coatesville? Um, Veterans, Veterans, Veterans Association. So my dad and I bought coats and then we donated coats to them. We donate coats for, uh, or donate money for food for veterans. Um, PTSD, we did, um, we donated for raising animals to help them. Oh, wow, that is something really beautiful to do in his memory. So what did you make of the casting? Um, I met him, I believe, at the Philadelphia reunion, and or the, the um, premiere, and it was, um, it was amazing how much he reminded me of my grandfather. Looks or just mannerisms or everything? His mannerisms. I think he, he studied my grandfather pretty well. Is it weird talking to someone who plays your grandfather on screen? Um, no, it was, it was more weird watching it on the screen with my grandfather commentating behind us. So (laughs) that was, that was the fun times. So he would sit there and tell you everything that was happening or everything Uh, that wasn't? He did did not stop talking the entire time it was airing. The only time he stopped talking was episode seven when he grabbed Doc Rowe and told him he was, um, having issues. The funny thing, somebody asked my brother. Somebody asked my brother, when did your father lose his leg? And my brother said, it kind of seriously said episode seven. (laughs) (laughs) Is that your favorite episode to watch? Well, I enjoyed all of them. Look, I mean, I would have been upset if my father died then, I think, but he was around, so I I knew he lost his leg. Debbie, so what's your favorite episode? Uh, Episode seven. It's where he lost his leg. Because it's the most meaningful to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the most personal. Mm-hmm. Easy Company meant the world to your dad, didn't it? He was close with Joe Toy. You know, these guys were like very, very close, all of them. Uh, they always hung out together. I mean, it was just my father would my father would tell you their addresses. I guess look at his. I still have his phone book. All these people's addresses, and when they move, he he puts another address in there. They were very. They were just very, very close. This is the only time I saw my dad cry. I saw my mother dying. At the premier band of brothers, he actually was working tears, talking yeah. about skin disc of somebody that was in, in the service with him. Um, and Debbie was telling us that other than that, you couldn't make him stop talking while he was watching it. He would commentate. Well, he he would. We had we got HBO, and all the mm-hmm. kids come over to my house, and my dad would come. So every episode we would watch, and that episode with Doc Rowe, when my father said, "Hey, Doc, you know I'm razor blades here," you know, and 
He said, kid, it's just how everybody we asked him, what's going on over here? He said, it's just Hollywood, kid. They make up all kinds of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was quiet. But, but see, he told me, you know, he would, he would tell us about, I think when, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name that got, the guy that got shot in the neck. And he was with Martin. Martin. Yeah. But he was, I said that, were you, were you there? He said, I was with him, not Martin. That's what he said. Now that's, so that's possible because, you know, he just clumped everything together. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to tell now because it's done. And all these guys with all these stories, fortunately we have books that, that they wrote and came out with and, and there was a, but he did, like I said, he loved, he loved these men. He, he loved these men. When they'd go to a reunion, he took care of the reunions. And when he was, when the bill came, he would, he, when he would get the bill, he didn't have the money, all this money, he would holler for Scotty's father or Johnny Martin. Or Lipton, and they give them the difference, the money they write a check. And yeah. that's the way they were. They didn't have, it wasn't glamorous like it was after Band of Brothers. Yeah. These guys just have a good time, and that was it. We have Marianne Malarkey with us as well, daughter of Don. First of all, where are you, and how are you doing with coronavirus? <laughs> I am in Salem, Oregon, which is about an hour south of Portland. Mm-hmm. And... We are still under a quarantine here in Oregon with no date on when we're coming out of it. Uh, we have, uh, my, my husband is working in the room next to me and our daughter is working downstairs out of her room and she's doing her online school and working for a CPA firm full time. So it's, uh, it's, it's a little interesting, but we're doing really well. Thank you. Oh, I'm good. Good to hear it. Um, I'm dying to ask you some questions. Uh, how did your father react to the show? It seems that Don had carried a lot of burdens and bad memories since the end of World War Two, the loss of Skip, Mark, other friends. Um, was traveling the battlefields a cathartic experience from him, for him? And do you think it helped to see the places in Europe that he helped to liberate? Yes, I definitely think it. Um was impactful for him to see the places again where he had, he had fought. I, I would say probably the most impactful place for him was going back to Breakor Manor. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time he went back there in the eighties, um, the Devaliers said that he was the first veteran to come back. And, um, and so then he made it, uh, basically a pilgrimage (laughs) about once a year he would he would go back and and see them and and uh spend some time there and um he um he was very um yes fought some demons through his life um just remembering all the bad things that happened in in europe and remembering all the the killing he had to do mm-hmm. which is not uh not easy to have to carry around for the rest of your life um but in the end so when the when he started um through the final part final years of his life and he developed dementia and he forgot the war. And when I would tell people that, it, not not like my easy company family people, yeah, 
But people in general, they would say, oh, that's too bad that he's forgotten that. Like, no, it's not. It is not. It is, it's good. It's really good because now he's not, he's at peace. You know, he can just enjoy watching a basketball game, football game, whatever he, golf game, whatever he had on TV. He could just enjoy that instead of ruminating over all those bad things that happened there. Because that always seemed to be at the end. That's all he could think about was all the bad things that he saw. Not not even just the, you know, killing people, but it's it's seeing Garnier and Toy get injured, seeing Buck get injured, um, just everything that has to do with all of his friends. So that that piece, like, I, I felt kind of almost grateful that he went through that and forgot that because it was it was a tough, probably final ten years of his life. And um, how did he feel when people came asking about the war in terms of uh, Ambrose and then the TV? And he he enjoyed talking about it eventually. Just like all the rest of the men, at first he didn't he didn't like to talk about it. He would only talk about it up at our we had a hunting cabin, and he would take a group of his friends up there, and my brother would go, and that's where he would talk about the war. And so our brother knew a little, you know, a lot not little, a lot more than us girls knew. There were three girls and a boy, and um, so people would knock on the door, kind of kind of like what Jean was saying when, yeah. you know, his, my dad's phone number was still in the phone book and people would, with his address, and people would come over and knock on the door and he'd let everyone in the house and he'd put exactly. on a pot of coffee. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> What's happening these strangers in your house? And, you know, most everybody was, you know, everybody was fine. But uh, he, he eventually... He liked talking about it. He started realizing that it was therapeutic for him to talk about this and then also to be able to remember the men that are now gone. He liked being able to talk about them. It wasn't always about himself. It was, it was a lot about the men. Um, so he, he enjoyed it. Uh, there was a time when, um, uh, went after my dad had died, he, we, um, lived, had got, received his house. And so my husband and I and my kids moved into the house and we're remodeling the house. And one day I pulled up, pulled into the garage and my dad at this time, actually at this time lived in a care home and there was this police car sitting beside our house. And I immediately started freaking out. I'm like, Oh my God, this guy is coming to tell me that my dad has died. Uh And so I get out, walk out of the garage and this cop gets out of his car and he comes up to me and he said, do you know whose house this used to be? (laughs) And I said, it was my dad's. (laughs) He said, "Are, are you related to Don Malarkey? I said, yes, it's my dad. So you just scared the crap out of me. I need to tell you that right now. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I just wanted you to know that wh- whose house this was. And I'm like, I really appreciate this, but please, as a police officer, 
do not do this to people because it scares people. <laughs> oh, bless him. Um, so how did your dad feel um, about the casting as well when you guys, what were your first impressions of Scott Grimes? Because he's a hell of a character, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. So he, he really likes Scott. Um, yeah. We, we didn't get to know him really all that well. Um, he called my dad um, quite a few times and, and talked to him. I, I remember him one time calling um, when they were over in England filming. And he asked my dad, did you all really smoke this much? Because I feel like every time I turn around, they're sticking a cigarette in my mouth. And, and my dad was like, well, yeah, you know, you don't really have anything else you can do. So you're always smoking. <laughs> Um, and, and then the first time we, we didn't meet Scott in, um, at the Paris premiere party, Scott's father had had a heart attack, I believe is what it was. And so he didn't come, but his wife at the time came to the, to the premiere, but he didn't get to come. So I didn't get to meet him until I think the Hollywood premiere party was when I first met him. And, um, he really, my from what my mother said, Scott really nailed his personality. Scott was, my dad was, as a young man, of course, like, you know, we were all, I think Jean was saying, I didn't know him when he was young. Yeah. Um, so you, you don't know how your parents' personality is. And, and we're very fortunate that, that we get to see possibly how our parents acted as a young person. So with with my mom, when we walked out of watching the, the premiere, of, we saw episode one and then bits and pieces of the rest, um, or episode one and episode two, so when, when we were in Paris. So we walked out of the theater there, and I said to my mom, was dad really funny like that? Was he a jokester? And did he really act like that? And she's like, yeah, he nailed his personality. He was... He was just like that. So that was fun to see, and it was fun to fun to hear that part. Um, Scott was always very nice to us and always very um, kind to my dad and thoughtful. Um, and he, he talked about, Scott told us that when he auditioned for my dad, he said, I knew that your dad sang, and as you know, he sang also. Yeah. He said that, during, they they did film him singing during um, when they were filming Beyond the Brothers, but it ended up on the cutting room floor. So he said it didn't get in, but he said I did sing for part of my audition. And then they would always tell him he always had to color his hair. So if he was going to be in a scene and he had had a little bit of grow out, he would have to color his hair darker uh-huh. because his red hair would show through. And um, so anyway, it, I think there was a you know mu- mutual acceptance of the of the two of them. They seemed to like each other. We we didn't have a you know like we weren't calling him weekly or super super close to him like that. And we do have actually with the actors. Uh, Scott wasn't in on it, but we have a few of them started singing uh, Chattanooga Choo Choo. Oh. And apparently the reason it was cut is because of the lyrics are racist now. Which is, oh. so if that's what Scott recorded, that's why it was on the cutting room floor. But we have a god awful rendition that they were doing where the, t- the t- timing didn't sync up, but we're going to use it anyway because it's so sweet that they're all sitting there <laughs> singing it. Um, so favorite episode? Uh, I, I would say I like episode two the best. 
Yeah. Um, you know, from the breaker breaker manor part, that's probably my favorite. Um, I, I like them all. I love episode seven. Um, you know, when Bastone is always a very, uh, emotional time for all of them. Um, I can remember going back with my dad there. Actually, when we were at the world premiere party for Band of Brothers, we rented cars and drove up to the Bojack Woods. And I have, I filmed my dad walking into the woods and he got, it was, it was almost like he was disoriented. He stopped and he put his hand up on a tree and just stood there and he was just quickly looking around and I, I'm filming this whole thing and, and I said, dad, what's wrong? And he, I, he said, I, I just need a moment. And he got very, number one, very emotional. But number two, I said, do you see people in the woods? And he said, yeah, it's just it, the, all the memories are just rushing back to my, uh-huh. my head. And it, it was, it's very difficult, but we also, we, we had a historian, a local historian come with us and he brought a metal detector. And so of course this is pre nine yeah. 11. So we did all this digging in there and we brought home, we dug up shrapnel. We had empty bullet casings. Uh, I had a, have a tang pouch cause they had, they'd have, I, I didn't think about this. They, they'd have to bury their, their garbage. Uh-huh. So we were digging up garbage holes and we, we have little containers with their K ration with their little, uh, their little keys that they use to open their K ration tins. And so I brought all this stuff home on the plane, you know, it, empty bullet casings yeah. on, on the plane in the shape of a bullet. <laughs> After nine 11, if we had been there, there's no way they, even if it's empty, they probably would have let me bring that on a plane. Until you say that you're Don Malarkey's daughter and then they let yeah. you do whatever you want. <laughs> I don't know if they even know who I was, but so, uh, anyway, so it was, it was a really, uh, uh, special day to go up and do that. We, um, probably the thing that was the hardest that, that same day, we drove back to, um, Paris. We had two cars and we got separated. And my mom and I were in one car and my niece and my dad and another friend were in another car. And so we get separated. My mom and I are lost in Paris and we cannot find the hotel. We don't have GPS. We don't have, I don't have, don't even think I had a cell phone back then on me at least. So anyway, my mom, the only thing she wanted to do was to go on the same riverboat cruise. Yep. And she missed that because it took us until probably eight o'clock at night to get back to our hotel. And once we got back to the hotel, I just sat and cried because I was so afraid. I was, first of all, I was so sad that my mom missed the only thing she wanted to do in Paris when this whole week was about my dad. And, um, but I ended up having such a memorable night that night with my parents because it was just the three of us. And we sat <clears throat> sat in the lobby of the hotel and ate and drank and had a wonderful time together. And then when everybody came back, they got, you know, the party started. So it was a fun evening. Um, I just, we've got one person left. 
and if I didn't know any of your names because Zoom was not telling me, I would look at the cheeky glint in George's eye and I would know that he was George Lotz's son because, I, yeah, I think you've got a hell of a lot of your dad in you, haven't you? <laughs> He's the oldest of all of us, George. <laughs> he is a bit cheeky. Yeah. Chris, Chris, by the way, you look so cool right now <laughs> with those shades on. That that's pure Texas law enforcement right there. If, as a British person, I had to give you a stereotype. That's it right there. It's awesome. Go on, Chris. Do your British. All right. Go on. Do it. <laughs> right. Listen. Pull over, or I shall say, pull over again. <laughs> I love it. And um, George Luz, you are the son of George Luz. You're named after your dad. Um, who is a memorable character in the series. Uh, let's talk to you about you and your role with the Easy Kids. Why is it so important to keep telling these stories of World War II? Now that the series has been made, the book's been published, um, why is it still so important? Well, you know, uh, you know, our dads got together in 1942 uh, predominantly, and, um, you know, they kind of started this legacy that we've got to continue and uh, so it's kind of an honor to tell these stories and uh, to share this stuff and to get together with Gene and Paul and Mary Ann, make friends with, um, uh, uh, you know, just on and on and on. And Chris, you know, the, the names go on and on. We get together at these reunions um, and we're just honoring our family members, not only the men, but their wives as well, because mm-hmm. without the wives, this wouldn't have, this wouldn't have continued. So we're very, very fortunate to have built these relationships that our parents started so many years ago. Um, and whereabouts are you, and how is Corona lockdown? Yeah, not too bad. I'm, pro- I'm, I'm pretty much disregarding Corona. I, I have my mask on. I stay away from people, but you know, I'm trying not to obsess about it. We can, we'll drive ourselves crazy. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I live. Uh, my wife and I, Susan, live about uh, 20 minutes west of Providence in Rhode Island. And it's a beautiful sunny day, and we're going to go for a walk after this to get a little air. Um, but, uh, yeah, so life is good here. So I've got to ask you how you felt when you met Rick Gomez, because he's a character and a half, isn't he? How close to your dad is he? Well, hey, Rick did a great job. We were very we were very lucky. We met Joe Hobbs, who was the main costume guy in the series, and he came to the reunion that was in – New Orleans, the one that Tracy and uh, Bill had put together. It was in New Orleans, Biloxi, New Orleans, and Hobbs was there, Tom Hanks was there, and all that. So uh, Hobbs had said, hey, if you want to come to the set, um, come over on your own steam, and we'll take care of you when you get <coughs> So I was able to meet Rick. My wife and I was able to meet Rick, um, James Matteo, and I think uh, Richard Spade, who played Mark. And uh, they came to our hotel, and then we went to the uh, set uh, later on. It was great to meet uh, them. And then all of the other guys, I, I I don't know if they were more excited or I was more excited to meet them because they were playing guys who I pretty much had met and knew. So it was, it was really great. And Rick just did a bang-up job. You know, we'll always, you know, admire his hard work and, and portraying our dad as, as close to – humanly possible. Um, you lost your dad in 1998, is that right? 
Yeah. So yeah. how how aware was he of what was going on? So he did the book. Was he involved in the book? Yeah, and I think Chris had mentioned also, you know, uh, Doc Rowe passed away in 88, and um, I think, uh, let's see, who else? Um, Kathy, your dad was 87? I don't know no, he was 88 as well. Dad was 88. Well, okay, yeah, so my dad was, my, oh, yeah, that's right, your dad was 88. My dad was 98. So uh, he knew that something was going on, and actually my dad and I went to Saving Private Ryan, which mm-hmm. is based on uh, – the book Band of Brothers, there was a little slice in there where the Pinkala kids, um, not the Pinkala, when, uh, uh, let's see, who was it? Skip Muck was close friends with Fritz Nyland. Uh-huh. And that's kind of where that story came from. So I went to that movie with my dad. And uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. Uh, you know, dad was, as he got older, he wasn't as patient as he maybe once was. And uh, so yeah, just picture this. We go to a movie. And you sit there, and you know how movies are today. They mm-hmm. they send you 15 minutes of commercials. So anyway, we sat through the movie. But my dad had a unique way to diffuse any sort of stress, and that was either through humor or one other way. So um, after the movie was totally over, and everybody stands up after Saving Private Ryan and all kind of a big hush, and they're rolling the credits, my dad looks over at me and said, what the hell was that? We weren't in any of those places. They were marching too close together. So he went through this whole litany of (laughs) cinematography, faux pas and stuff. And I think that was a way of him to diffuse the grittiness of that movie and, you know, the war that, you know, we all saw, all of us saw that. Did you learn in that case so much more about your dad in World War II from the other veterans uh, after Band of Brothers? Well, you know, that was one of the amazing things was meeting the guy after, you know, because I met the guys initially in 1965. Yeah. And um, so meeting the guys after that, after my dad had passed away, and they came up to me and, you know, because my dad was killed in an industrial accident. And like Gene said, you know, his dad came up. And um, so hearing just some of the cool things that they said and how they loved each other. You know, all these guys loved each other. You know, mm. they may not have agreed on everything, but they loved each other. They would do anything for them. And it was really touching for me from that point on to build relationships with these guys that my dad had started so many years ago. And it's sort of, I'm I'm taking from this that these are relationships that, that carry on. I mean, like Band of Brothers, is, even for Susan and for Kathy, whose family weren't, perhaps like named front and center for the entire series this series has made a massive difference not only to your relatives that were in it um but to you guys as well yes oh for sure for sure and actually i have a question for kathy you know kathy if i'm not sure if you remember but in 1968 at the las vegas reunion i was 12 years old my sister i think was 15 or 16 and there was an it was an event going on that night for you know your mom and dad and stuff and they were all out and then they, we were kind of left for our own devices in Las Vegas, so we end up at some nightclub. Now I'm 12. I don't know how you girls, my sister included, and maybe it was your sister Drew. I'm not sure. But it, we was, up, it was yes, George. It was my sister Drew because I was off at college. So, oh, okay. yes, he has oh. fond memories of, <laughs> um, I think, fond memories. And I think there was a, a couple younger sisters, too. My younger 
sisters, I have four, they went, the youngest ones, and Drew went to more reunions than I did, because I was out of the house in 1965. Wasn't that the night you proposed to Drew when you were 12? (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what the heck was going on. All I remember was, we're in this nightclub, I'm 12 years old, it's loud, and I'm just saying, are we going to get out of here? And then I'm sure all the girls are thinking, well, this little kid shut up. Why did we even bring him with us? <laughs> so, and I, I think that's where the whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I guess the doormen at, the, at the, these places didn't really care. You know, five or six girls came in with their little brother. They would just let him in. So, so she turned you down, right? <laughs> <laughs> To my best recollection, to my best recollection. But but that's been the amazing thing is, you know, us coming together after this whole thing and really connecting with each other, hearing the stories, sharing the stories. One of the things that was has been even on a remarkable stage is, you know, we're, we're meeting, we've met a lot of the guys who survived. We met all the guys who survived the war, essentially. But we're meeting in the last 20 years, we've met some of the family members of the people who didn't make it. Yeah. You know, Skip Muck's family, uh, Alex Pinkala's family, uh, let's see, there was a couple others I had written down, Dukeman's family, mm-hmm. the nephew, I think somebody met the nephew of Lee God. Sobel. Sobel. Yeah. So there's so many, there's so many connections that we've made that have kind of enriched our lives to a degree that I don't think any of us could have imagined, and I look. I think our parents look down on us, and hopefully, are proud that we continue. Absolutely. You know, I like to say uh, one thing about, uh, if I could, about Popeye and my father. Mm-hmm. They were in some restaurant in, I think it was in Vegas, somewhere around here, and they were ordering food, and Popeye picked up this gigantic pepper shaker, which looks like a German grenade. Right? And Popeye picks it up, grabs it, hollers grenade and throws it, and it goes through a glass window. My father said, we got thrown out of here, kid, real fast. <laughs> so this is, I think they're funny stories, but I guess if you're sitting near the window, it wasn't funny at all. But that's what they did. That's the way they, these guys, I'm telling you, they were, they were, uh, they were just what, what they were every other, my dad said this, and he would say this all the time. It wasn't just easy company. It was the Navy, it was the Marines, it was the Air Force. never said, and it was a ton of other companies. And there know a lot of people were upset that Easy Company, but they had nothing to do with this. Right. Yeah. You know, they were just, but their company represents all the paratroopers in, in the war. Mm. 82nd, 101st, 173rd, they represent all of them. And I learned so much history from just watching this because before this, I had no clue what happened in Europe. Yeah. And my wife just said, and you still don't. So <laughs> she's in the back. We're like the heckler. And even the Marines, if you look at the Pacific, I mean, these guys went through torture. So all oh. the stuff that these well, our parents endured without, I don't know how to, you know, like malarkey. I, every time I talked to Don Malarkey and I, about my father, the guy would break up in tears. They were just so, they had so much stress inside of them that they never, ever brought out. Never. Never, never, I don't know how they dealt with it. My father wore a wooden leg was made of maple. It weighed about 50 pounds, 40 pounds. And he would walk really? around with this thing his whole life. And I'm, later on in life, I'm thinking, how the heck did this guy do this? Mm. But he did, and that's just, 
You know, he never complained. He just went to the hospitals, visited people, told them, just get up, kid, and you start walking. And that's just the way they were. And uh, my wife's dancing in the background. So just excuse my <laughs> I have a couple of comments on that, I wanted to say. And maybe the other kids experienced this. When I would meet some of the veterans for the first time, what I felt they saw in me was my father. And they would some of them would even call me Burr. You know, it was like they were seeing their old friend for the first time in a long time. And they got so excited. Oh, my God, Burr Smith's daughter. Um, that... Um, in fact, that's how I met George. We were at the Philadelphia premiere, and someone asked me to sign a book as my dad. So I signed the book, and George leaned over my shoulder and said, well, if you're Burr Smith, I'm George Les. <laughs> and it, it was just, I never forgot that moment. But actually, Chris was the first person I connected with. Um, I can't remember how. It was on a forum, maybe, was it? We started writing back and forth on some website, maybe HBO's website, and then we met at the Hollywood Bowl premiere. So George and Chris, um, I, knew, I met from the very beginning. And um, Marianne I met in Hollywood, too. So it's just been just a really lovely friendship. But I think the men sort of started it by pulling us together for the fathers that had predeceased. They treated us like we were part of the whole. Um, at least that's what I felt. And, you know, in a picture. Pick back on what George had said earlier. You know, the the men the men had their last reunion in in 2012 in Kansas City, and it, and I don't remember it even being a discussion among the kids. We just we just assumed next year we're going to have a reunion and we're going to continue. We've had a reunion every year, even though the men have officially stopped. The kids have continued a reunion every year, and it's just that's a testament to the relationship that those men had that we have created our own extension thereof. And, and I, you know, I, I talk to, you know, so many of the family members on a regular basis. I mean, these are, these are people that are now my family. And so that's, that's the legacy that those guys have given us. And the distance doesn't even, I mean, you guys are in all four corners of the U S and yet it it doesn't make a difference. Does it? Yeah. I've got one, I've got one quote from my dad. Um, and he had said, and this was at the book opening in 1992, and he got up at the end of it and got back on stage. He had already said his little slice about what was going on. He got back on the stage and said, nothing against my wife, who I've been married to for 40-some years, but the three years I spent with these men the best three years of my life. And that was true. What they went through just totally was the most important part of his life, was the three years with these men and the relationships that they forged in moving forward. I think the title of the TV series, what I'm getting from you guys, is that there's, it's no exaggeration, they were brothers, weren't they? Mm. One thing that you, you, one thing you don't get out of the series, if you watch the Bastone, which is really one of the better ser- you know better parts of the series, if you watch the original footage of Bastone, where the snow is blowing and these guys can't even see each other, I mean that had to be horrendous. You know, you see it in the movie, it's it, it, it's kind of watered down as far as how bad it is. Uh-huh. But when you see the real footage, 
and they got to dig foxholes and, and, and stay warm and they don't have the clothing. And you think, my God, trench foot. These guys went through hell in this short time that they were there. And, and if you weren't getting that. It's like the war's not over until you leave. I went to Vietnam. I was there for a year. They went to war. It wasn't over until the war's over. So just to think that these guys went through all that and came home. Now, not on, on the surface on streets. They probably, my father probably had all kinds of stuff in his head, I'm sure. He was the nicest man you never wanted to cross, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, did you find after Banded Brothers, did, did you, and finding out about your dad's role in World War Two, did you realize you had stuff in common with him because of Vietnam that you didn't no. know before? No, oh, God, no. no. Vietnam, it was, it was 90 degrees. We had, we can go down and jump in the ocean. <laughs> well, no, what they went through, what I'm saying, if you think about it, I, people don't realize this, these people, not just the parents, these characters were trained for two years while the war was going on. Two years. Mm. So when they jumped out of a plane, you dumped 18,000 or so lunatics onto the ground, and these people, were they were ready to rock and roll. Mm. And if you think about that, I mean, today, to imagine two years they're in training while we're at war. That's kind of amazing when you put it in that perspective. Yeah. And that's the stuff I realized. When I was in Vietnam, I had an R&R in Japan, which means we went to Japan for, for six, seven days. And this was in the 60s. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, now I'm thinking there was probably a lot of Japanese people in that country that were in World War II. And I'm thinking maybe I shouldn't even have been there. <laughs> you know, that's hindsight. That's hindsight. It's just that you don't realize what, what everybody went through until you start digging into history, which Paul does. And, and, and you see all this stuff and you, there's, I don't, they could write stories, endless stories between the Marines, the Air Force. I can't wait for that Air Force movie to come out either. And, and, and the Army in, in, in all these countries. It's just, you know, at Poland, you can write stories about everywhere. Uh-huh. And, and that woman, that woman that, 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 I don't know if anybody saw her. She was like 18 when she went into the French resistance <clears throat> and she's still living. It's just amazing some of the stories that are there. So, but I thank you today. I don't know. I guess you're wrapping up, but I appreciate you being getting me on here, and I appreciate you know seeing all the kids. No, it's been amazing to talk with all of you, um, and to sort of see the legacy of Band of Brothers, not just from my perspective, which was a, a young teenager watching a TV show, um, to speak to the people. Who it was like your own personal history up there on screen. Can I share some good news before we before we sign off? Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, and I, Paul, I don't think anyone knows. I mean, I think some of the kids here know this, but I know Paul doesn't know. Um, so we are fortunate enough to have, um, writ- we've just written a book and it comes out in February and it's all about my dad's relationship with a German soldier that he, Forged, which was after Band of Brothers came out, um, they ended up. His um, his name was Fritz, and Fritz Fritz Engelbert Fritz fought against the 101st in Bastogne. So he was only about three miles away from from Easy Company, mm-hmm. and it, it's been it it turned out really really. It's a wonderful book about. Um, about giving forgiveness to each other prior to them dying. Um, it talks about family, talks about peace. Um, it, 
it's a rare story, war story with a happy ending. Um, we just don't see a lot of books like this. And the other thing that, that you see, and I, and I think it was Chris that talked about, um, seeing, learning about other stories, you know, learning about the German side, um, through this process, I've learned so much more about the German side during the war and then post-war, what they all went through, you know, when we were talking about, you know, the concentration camps and, and all of that. It's just, it's, it's amazing to learn, um, about that side of the story. But anyway, it's called, we, um, it's called Saving My Enemy and we're super excited about it. And I hope that <clears throat> you all be able to, to read it and enjoy it, enjoy it because it was quite a process to, to put together over this last year. A pretty unique perspective as well to be able to There's do follow that. Follow up podcast coming up, Alex. Yep, definitely. <laughs> we definitely have to do a podcast on that. Join us tomorrow when Bobfest concludes with a uh, mass cast reunion. I think we're going to have to divide it into two podcasts and give them both to you tomorrow because we just have so much to share with you from so many of the guys that you see on screen in Band of Brothers. It's truly exceptional and there's a lot of stuff in there that you won't have heard before. Do join us for that. Don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as $1 a month by going to www.historyhack.podpeen.com. Uh, it will help to keep us going after the coronavirus crisis is over, which we'd really like to do. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you, Brad. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.